Danny, could you stay here for a second? We've got to do a little demo. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. We are uh, stocking up on ice cubes for the coming week. Have you guys seen the weather? It's going to be 110 in Portland? That's insane. So it'll be a fun Sunday next week. Uh, we'll turn on our air conditioner, I think, which is this thing right here. <laughs> I want to do a demo to start today because we're talking about Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and I think this will help to kind of put something together. So Danny, I need you to pretend that this is a, a wiffle ball bat, okay? And I want you to, you guys are the captains of the team, so you get to choose who's going to be, that's a fun spot to be in when you're the captain, you get to pick. Everybody lines up, and you're kind of looking at everybody, and you're saying, okay, if I'm going to win this game, who's the best players to have? So show us your pose. If you were at bat, how would you stand? Okay, that's pretty good. Oh, well, Babe Ruth. Now, I was out in Antelope, Oregon on a youth camp one time, and this kid in my youth group stands up. Now, we're, we're ready to play wiffle ball. They have a sweet wiffle ball court there. And he comes up to the plate, and if this is the plate, he stands kind of a little bit to the side of it and goes like this. <laughs> Go ahead. You guys get to pick. You have this guy, or you have this guy. Staring straight at the pitcher. Like that. Okay? Oh, that's good. We're good now. We'll quit messing around. That kid's name was... He, I'll show you again. His name was David. There wasn't a single pitch that got past him, and there wasn't a single hit he had that wasn't a home run like this. He would swing like that and just blast it every single time. In a million years, you never would have picked that kid for your team because it was ridiculous. He's standing there with the bat behind him. It was just obscene. But old David was a home run hitter. He was the best guy to have on the team. The disciples that we have been watching walk with Jesus through this first century context have come to a place where, where they had, we've, a couple weeks ago, we saw them hit one of the best recruits possible. This man came up to Jesus with a question. The story Mark tells us reveals that this man was prime time. He was influential. He had cash. He had uh, a, a notoriously clean uh, moral record. He was very, very good morally. I mean, he was a stellar kind of guy for the kingdom of God, for the team of disciples. And after he asked Jesus this question about, about eternal life, Jesus' answer dismays him, and he goes away downtrodden and bummed, and he doesn't make the team. And Jesus essentially has told him, bro, you're your blessings that God has given you are not things that you should want to keep, and they're not things that you should love. And the, and the guy hears that, and he says, that doesn't make sense to me, and so he walks away, and Mark tells us that he was very sad. He was bummed, and the disciples look at Jesus, and they say, what the heck kind of captain are you? You know, that guy had a Danny Kugelberg pose. It was awesome. Why did you let him go? And it baffles them. And then Jesus' words, as we've seen, continue to baffle them. 
Scholars talk about the dull disciple motif that weaves through the entire gospel of Mark. They're dull. They're not picking it up. So they have lost the best recruit, and here comes the worst recruit possible. Let's pick it up in Mark chapter 10, verse 46, okay? This guy is probably not the kind of guy that you would just instinctively say, hmm, we should get him on the team. Mark 10, verse 46. They came to Jericho. This is Jesus, the crew of disciples, and Jericho is just east of Jerusalem, probably about a day's walk. Okay? So they came to Jericho. They're headed toward Jerusalem. And as Jesus and the disciples and a large crowd with him, they were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, who was a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, pause for a second. That's an imperative statement, okay? This isn't sort of a, hey, Jesus, can you cut me some slack or whatever? It's an imperative. He's yelling it out. He hears this name, Jesus of Nazareth, and his reaction is, yes, I need that guy. And notice how different his posture is from the previous recruit. If you remember the the very wealthy one, his, his posture was running up to Jesus. He did fall to bended knee, but he came to critique whether he agreed with what Jesus said or not. He uh, was the one who knew. Was Jesus going to give him what he wanted, what he needed, what he thought he needed? This guy goes to Jesus and he just says, have mercy. Have mercy on me. So ver- verse 48, many scolded him. They scolded him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. You've got to ask, why do you suppose they were scolding him? Shut up, dude. Why are you talking? Why do you suppose they would tell a blind beggar to just be quiet? I bet it's a little bit similar to when they told the children to just shut up. Get out of the way. We're dealing with an important person here, and you are not important. I think that's at the heart of it. Stop talking. He screams it out again. Jesus stopped and he said, call him. So they called the blind man and they said, hey, blind man, have courage. Get up. He's calling to you. So the guy throws off his cloak. He jumps up and he comes to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man replied, Rabbi, teacher, let me see again. And Jesus said to him, go. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he regained his sight and he followed him on the way or on the road. That's interesting, isn't it? Immediately he picks it up and he follows Jesus. Now they're headed up into the hills in between Jericho and Jerusalem and this guy is all in. The other wealthy man walked away sad This guy joins the team, and he's stoked. Here is another blind man that Jesus has healed. Do you remember the previous one in Mark chapter 8? When he healed that blind man, you remember the scene? 
He heals the blind man. He's got some of that locally sourced saliva mud. He spits in the dirt and, you know, it's like, it, it's, pretty in, it's pretty interesting, that two-stage healing. Well, if you remember, in the Old Testament, uh, I, when we talked about that healing, we talked about how the Old Testament always uses this language when it, when it says uh, people have ears but they can't hear, or they have eyes but they can't see. It's the Old Testament's way of saying you have an idolatry problem. You have attached your heart uh, to things for ultimate security that can't give them to you. And there's this sense in the whole narrative of the Bible, there's this sense that when you become like what you worship, and the idea was if you worship yourselves or your money or your possessions or the little wooden statues you carved out of wood, you'll become like them. But they can't hear and they can't see because they're dead and you're becoming dead. So that was in Mark 8, Jesus is, was trying to help the disciples who he had just said, you guys have ears but you can't hear. You guys have eyes but you can't see. He was suggesting to them, you're off base. So there's this symbolic act. The healing is a symbolic act showing us, showing the disciples, Jesus is doing more than just giving physical eyesight. The act itself is to teach millions of people about the nature of God and what he's trying to do in the world. It's a symbolic act. All sin comes from our inability to perceive reality. You ever think of it that way? If we were able to see the truth and the reality of what sin does to us and what it does to the people we're with, we would never sin again. That's incredible. That suggests to me, if you're like me and you're not totally free from sin, it suggests that we all have blindness, doesn't it? Blindness that God is continuously waking us up to through his word and through the body of believers. That's why we're here. So, check out this. Do we have projectors? We have one projector that works. Can you pop that slide up, Steve? Here's, here's kind of a breakdown for Mark, if you will. The first eight chapters are act one. Big theme there is, who is this man? Remember, they keep asking, who do you say I am? Who is this guy? Act two is the section we've been in and we're ending today. We're in the end of Mark 10. We'll get into 11 in a second. Big theme here that they just can't believe why he has so much suffering involved with his life. That's at the heart of it. And then the last act as we enter into Jerusalem today is going to be Jesus finishing the mission. Notice the middle act is bookended by blind people being healed. The Bartimaeus healing is the second one right there. That's the one we're reading today. Mark structures his story on purpose. It's very interesting. You've got to see the theme here of his gospel work, trying to wake us up, make us hear, give us the ability to perceive reality. Do I think that I've got things pretty set up in my life, and so I come to the scriptures to critique Jesus? like that wealthy, very respectable, good recruit? Or am I broken and desperate for life, for a, for a different reality than what I know? It's either wealthy one, new reality, just right. The blind one says, have mercy on me, kind of throwing himself truly at Jesus' feet. And did you catch that last line? 
of Bartimaeus? That's verse 1052. Jesus says to him, go, your faith, your faith has healed you. And immediately he regained his sight and he followed Jesus on the way. Yes, that's amazing. Wow, your faith has healed you. I can't pass by this uh, without a word about faith. The word faith is used a lot these days. Faith-based organizations, you've got to have faith. We use it frequently. It's, it's by faith alone that you're saved. It's at the core of our theology. It's in our popular conversations elsewhere. It kind of draws us to say, what does this mean? What did this man really do or believe that brought him healing? Of course, we know Jesus is the one who heals, but he says, your faith has saved you. As you read the scriptures and you run into this word faith, I do not want you to think that faith is, is the willingness to believe in something even though there's no evidence for it. Now, many of you say, well, that's why would I not believe that? That is what faith is. <laughs> that's because we're living right now. I don't know exactly when this sort of sparks, but Soren Kierkegaard in the early 1800s really drove that into our culture. He coined the phrase, a leap of faith. And the idea is, you come to this place, there's no evidence at all, but you just will yourself to believe. And the, and the more you can muster up the willpower to believe in crazy stuff, the more faith that you have. The New Testament's vision of faith has everything to do with something that God gives to us. It's a power or an ability to act and think in accordance with the kingdom of God. It's not just willing yourself to believe things that look like nonsense on the front end. It's actually looking at the real evidence before you, listening to the teaching of the church and the word and the history of the world and saying, I have real reason to believe that this makes sense. Notice in verse 47, this man did not hear the townsfolk around him saying, Jesus the Nazarene, and then he says, huh? Who, who's that dude? I never heard of him. I guess I'll just believe that he's super great and he can heal me. I have no reason to believe he can, but I'll believe it, right? That's not what he's doing. He's heard a story about what Jesus has actually been doing in his world, and he looks around at his world and he says, man, I'm not getting anywhere else with the way the world works. Maybe this guy is for real. Maybe what they're saying about him is actually true. I'm going to go talk to him. I'd encourage there's those of you in this room that are wondering about Jesus and thinking about his life. You've, you're in that spot because you've heard a story, and, and part of it is true, and part of it is false, and you're concerned, and you're worried. What is it? Don't just sit in that spot. Let those doubts that you have become the beginning of an inquiry where you take your questions to the scriptures and to the church. No, this guy heard legitimate stories from real human beings, and he wanted to find out. I wouldn't be afraid to say that a huge majority about what you hear about Jesus today, through the kinds of commercial sources that we have at our fingertips all the time, is just, it's just ridiculous. If you want to, you think, you think about Jesus, so many of us have learned about Jesus from our televisions and our computers and our cell phones and blogs and that kind of thing. Bono, Oprah, every single U.S. president ever. 
<laughs> I mean, if you're learning about Jesus from the U.S. presidents, I, you're going to be bummed. It's not Jesus. It's Jesus being co-opted for an agenda. Pure Jesus is in the Gospels. I cannot encourage you strongly enough then to read and study and marinate on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and hear Jesus for himself and see him on his own terms and engage with people who have been changed by Jesus. It doesn't matter if they can recite lots of Bible verses to you. Okay? They don't have to be scholarly. They don't have to be official leaders of the church. But people have a story to tell about how Jesus has really changed their life. Listen to that. Faith is something that is passed down, Paul says, and it's passed down through the ways that human beings talk about a real Jesus who changes real lives. This blind Bartimaeus heard from real people, and he said, I'm going to go see for myself. And he jumps up. He throws off the coat. He runs to Jesus. He shows us a man who, unlike you and I, who so often we think that, well, before I turn to Jesus, I got to finish up this, this thing. When I was younger, I thought, I got to finish up practicing and experiencing all the sins before I go to Jesus. I want to try it and experience it and see it, and then I'll go to Jesus. Or sometimes we think later on in life, having chosen that, then I thought, Man, I've got I've to get myself all cleaned up first, morally pure, before I go to church, before I go to Jesus. We have all these reasons where we say, okay, I will in like a month or 50 years, somewhere in there, and then I'll go to Jesus. And, it's, and, and this guy has a great example where he's like, I hear him, and he jumps up, throws the coat off, and he's barreling straight at him. And then he expresses his own faith based on what he heard. Based on what he heard, did he know for a certain fact that Jesus could heal him? No. He didn't know for a certain fact. Faith does not mean certainty. Faith is allegiance to one who is worth trusting. It is the confident ground that we walk between certainty and uncertainty. And that's the picture we see in this last line, which shows Bartimaeus joining Jesus on his entry into the greatest suffering yet. The wealthy man stayed blind, walked away bummed. The poor blind beggar regained his sight, and then he loved and he followed Jesus into a brutally joyful way of life. That's amazing. He picks it up. And now he's headed into Jerusalem. Now, if, we, if you've been through this series at all, you know how Mark is setting Jerusalem up, kind of like Mount Doom, okay? He's setting it up as this dark place that's going to be the end of the line in a brutal and murderous way. And this blind Bartimaeus says, yep, I'm going to come with you. So today then marks sort of the beginning of the end for our series in Mark, my friends. That's kind of a bummer, although we have been in it for some time. We are now going to enter into Jerusalem with Jesus, and you're going to see Mark slow the narrative way down to a crawl. I mean, he's just going to tiptoe along and let us see everything that's going on. Jesus so far has been teaching the disciples privately. Now he's going to get public activist almost. He's going to start to be very, very visible to lots of people, and he's going to do some wild stuff. 
<laughs> like next week. I, my goodness, next week he's going to weave together a whip and start beating people with it. You know, don't miss next week's uh, episode. It'll be fantastic. And you kind of look at it and you say, this, Jesus, you? That's not the Jesus I learned from pieces of flannel. So you've thought that Jesus was radical already, and that was in his private teaching. Just wait now that he enters into the public ministry in Jerusalem. So I want you to pick it up with me again here in Mark chapter 11. And this is the next act, the next scene that the blind Bartimaeus story leads us into, okay? So here we are, chapter 11, verse 1. Now as they approached Jerusalem near Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, uh, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go on ahead to the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there that has never been ridden. That's quite a prediction, isn't it? <laughs> you know, they're just walking along the road. It's not like Jesus got a text to pick up the donkey at 3rd and Ankeny. You know, he, he, he just said, go on up to the next village and you're going to find this kind of donkey there. Then untie it, bring it here. And if anybody says to you, why are you doing this? Then tell him, the Lord needs it, and he'll send it back to you when he's done. <laughs> if that's my instruction, I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> hey, I'm going to steal your donkey because the Lord needs it. So they went, and they found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and then they untied it. And sure enough, some people were standing there, and they said to them, what are you doing untying that colt? And they replied, as Jesus had told them, and the, by, and the bystanders, they let them go. And then they brought the colt. Uh, it's probably not a big deal because there is a custom, I forget how to pronounce it, and, angria or angria or something. It sounds like sangria. It's not sangria, but it sounds like that. There's a custom they had. If you were a master or a ruler, you could sort of commandeer somebody's uh, vehicle, a donkey or whatever, and take it and use it and then give it back to them if they were of a lower class. So there's a little bit of a customary precedent that's set here. It's not as crazy as it looks. So they let the colt go, and then they reply, let's see, verse 17, then they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Both those who went ahead and those who followed, they kept shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of the Father David. Hosanna in the highest. And then Jesus entered Jerusalem. He's the king, right? He entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple. And then after looking around at everything, he went out to Bethany since it was already late. You know? That's kind of weird. Why are they praising and singing and dancing? Hosanna, Hosanna, branches from the fields. You're the best, you're the best. And then he walks in, looks around, and goes out to a little village. That's not very triumphal. And you say, okay, we're trying to get into these disciples' first century sandals, as it were. Because we as Christians are disciples. If you follow Jesus, if you believe in him, discipleship is Christianity. Anybody who tells you that discipleship is just sort of an add-on 
it's something you can do if you want, but otherwise it's not an essential part of Christianity, is somebody who hasn't been spending a lot of time in the New Testament. Christianity is discipleship, learning and living the life and the way and the truth of Jesus. And so we're there, and we want to get into those sandals, and we want to kind of feel and see what it's like to be a disciple, what it's like to think and act and behave and how they react to life with Jesus. So if we're alongside Jesus and we're one of these disciples, you think about just a recap. We did this recap last week, but I want to keep it in the front of our mind. At the end of Mark chapter 8, Jesus tells Peter that this long-awaited, mighty warrior Messiah that Peter and all the Jews have been waiting for is actually going to suffer and die, and Peter is totally appalled. He's spun out, and Jesus rebukes him. Then at the end of chapter 9, Jesus predicts his betrayal and his death, and the disciples are, are absolutely speechless, and they change the subject to a much more congenial tone of sort of arguing over who's the best and the greatest. Jesus said, it's going to get really bad. They're like, uh, I don't know. Am I better than you or are you better than me? I don't know. I don't know. You know, that's kind of how they react. It's so out of their mind. And then last week at the end of chapter 10, Jesus basically shows them a trailer, if you will, for the final showdown in Jerusalem. He's going to be spit on, mocked, flogged, murdered, and they just ignore his words. We saw no response from them at all. We just see Mark showing them lapsing into a childish competitive sort of, I want to sit at the left hand of Jesus. No, I'm going to sit at the right hand of Jesus. And they sort of fight about that. The effect of Mark's story here, if we're trying to feel and see what the disciples are doing, he gives us the sense that this whole plan is just spiraling out of control. It's, it's, it's not happening the way, the, nothing's really cohesive. They're, they're not paying attention. They're still blind and deaf. What's going on? It gives that sense, which is a very disappointing reality for a God of order and creation and power and vision and truth who knows everything. How is the story of him in the world spinning around out of control, confusing and freaking people out? It looks like Jesus is going to lose his followers. The whole plan is going sideways. But the truth is that Jesus is directing the play. He's guiding everything that happened. He knows where the donkey's going to be. He says, go, you'll find it right there. He says, and when they ask you this, here's what to say. And then when they say it, it works out well. Mark is throwing you a little wink, wink. It looks like it's going cray cray, and it's not. Jesus is in full control over what's happening, but it just doesn't quite look like it. The account, says Daryl Bach, this account is full of irony for those who can see what God is really doing. Jesus is coming into the context of a bunch of Jewish pilgrims entering the holy city for the festivals of Passover and the Feast of the uh, Unleavened Bread. So there's thousands coming to the city. They're coming to celebrate the Exodus, the deliverance of God, the greatest moment in their identity formation of a delivering God who can break them free. So they're all coming up for that. It would have been very easy for Jesus to just, he and his boys, to just roll into Jerusalem under the radar, yeah? In the crowds. What would you do? What would you do if somebody said, hey, Portland's chief of police 
and the mayor and the county sheriff and the city council members, they all want you dead, <laughs> right? The first thing we do is like, I'm getting out of Portland and never coming back. But then for some reason you have to stay and they say, there's gonna be a Christmas tree lighting ceremony down at Pioneer Square and you've got to go. At least you would say, gosh, I'm gonna wear a fake mustache and just kind of stay nonchalant here. You would think that and Jesus does neither. He goes right in and then he and then he does something that absolutely draws lots of attention onto specifically him. <laughs> He's supposed to be walking. Everybody's on foot walking up to Passover. You don't ride on stuff walking up to Passover unless you literally can't walk. Jesus is very able-bodied. He's in his, you know, young 30s. He's good to go. But he gets up on a donkey. There's nowhere else in the whole story of Jesus that you ever see him ride anything. He doesn't ride horses or donkeys or carts or scooters, nothing. He, he's always walking except here. He gets up onto a donkey. We remember that Bartimaeus called Jesus the son of David. And we know that there are these Messiah overtones here. 550 or so years prior, a prophet named Zechariah had literally said, your king is going to come to you, and he is legitimate and victorious, and he's going to come to you riding on a donkey, on a young donkey. So as you watch this sort of thing unfold in front of you, you, you can maybe hear Zechariah's words you see a guy who should be walking and always has been walking, doing something that's pretty socially questionable, riding up to the top. It's kind of reserved only for royalty. It sounds like Zechariah. It looks like royalty. And so they start shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, if you were an English speaker at that moment, what you would be screaming is, save, we pray. Save now. Save. Save now. Save. Save now. That was what they're chanting, if you will. They use this word in 2 Samuel and 2 Kings as a cry out to honor real human kings. But notice it was to honor kings, not to honor God himself. And pay close attention to what the crowds say. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes. It is not blessed is the Lord who comes. They're not praising Jesus for who he is. It makes us wonder. We don't really know who even these crowds are. Many say they're the ones that followed him up from Jericho. They're not even there at Jerusalem greeting him. We know there are there people greeting him. I'll get to that in a second. But you kind of say, huh, they're praising Jesus and they're totally stoked that he's there and they're singing words from the Bible to him. And yet they're not really understanding who he is or what he's about. They're really, really excited about what they think he's here for. Makes me wonder, am I praising Jesus for who he really is? Or do I praise him for who I think he is? Or maybe, do I not like him for who I think he is? I used to think that I rejected Christianity when I walked away from the church. Now I'm learning that I just didn't really know what it was. Exactly what these crowds of people are thinking 
when they sing this out, is really not clear. If they considered him to be a Messiah, then it was the kind of the Messiah, uh, the kind of Messiah that the disciples were expecting. Remember when, I've already mentioned it, in chapter 8, where where Jesus says, hey, I'm going to suffer and die. That's not the kind of Messiah that the disciples were expecting, and they just say, that's ridiculous. You won't do that. They're expecting a super-powered warrior who would kill off the people in this world that they hated the most, the non-believers. That's what Jesus was. That's, that's, that's who they wanted. That's what they believed God had promised. I will someday send you somebody who will kill off all of the people that you hate the most. The whole scene is oddly reminiscent of a big battle that happened about 180 years before this moment we're looking at. It was called the Maccabean Revolt, and a really wicked dude had taken over the temple and wanted to appease the Greek powers to be, and in his desire to do that, he started worshiping Zeus in the Jewish temple, sacrificing pigs on the Jewish altar. These are big-time no-nos. You just don't do that. The Jews hated him. This guy named Judas Maccabeus launches a revolt, and they win. They, They slaughter the bad guys. They take the temple back. They make their nation great, and they and they restore the power that they were supposed to. Sorry, I was a little too hot there. But they got the power back, and they were stoked, and that's where the Hanukkah tradition comes from, from that military victory. And in it, in 1 Maccabees chapter 13, it says, after they won, the Jews entered Jerusalem with praise and palm branches, with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and hymns and songs, because the great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. This whole scene looks very much like when Judas Maccabees and the warrior boys came back to town. Was it a normal and reasonable desire? Yeah, real enemies, real enemies. We want them gone, out of the way, no longer burdening us, no longer threatening us. Real enemies to point at and blame. It's your fault You're the ones who made the culture this way. You're the ones who are destroying the goodness of God. You guys did it. We need to stop you. Power up and fight and win. At least I'm not bad like you. We need a good God, and a good God is one who kills off the bad enemies, and that's good news. Don't we see this everywhere in us still today, this notion that my personal Jesus hates all of the same people that I hate? Save, save now, you see. That's save me right now from these people I don't like. That's what they're singing when they cry out, Hosanna. We cry out to God asking him to get the troublesome people out of our way. How disappointing is it then when we hear God say to us, love your enemies and pray for those who constantly try to wreck your life. Well, that's awfully disappointing, (laughs) I thought you were going to get them out of my way, or at least change them. How does the real Jesus disappoint you and me? Is he failing to save, save now, to do what he should be doing in terms of reversing Roe v. Wade? Why isn't he reversing it? Is he failing what he should be doing in terms of racism in our culture? 
Is he failing to do what he should be doing about the destruction of his own creation? Why doesn't he stop this environmental destruction that we see? Is he failing to save your marriage in the way that he should be doing it if he were really Jesus? Is he failing to remove your urges and your impulses to sin? He is Jesus, right? I know Jesus. Isn't he supposed to take away my sin? Isn't he supposed to make me strong so I can resist temptation? So why do I still lust for control, for power, for money, for sex? Why do I still have this? He's not taking it away. He should be. I've asked him a thousand times to take away my desires for pornography. But they're still there. And it's still difficult. I've asked him a thousand times to take away my obsession on alcohol or painkillers. Why won't, why won't he? He's kind of disappointing me a little bit, you know? Is he not paying attention to my thousands of prayers? I've prayed the same thing a hundred times. Every day these things still haunt me. Is Jesus even powerful? He's disappointing me a little bit. And I thought that when I agreed to believe that he was real, he would wipe away all of my sins, and I would never have those regrets. And, I would, and all those gnawing memories and fears from the past, those would all just be gone, but, but he hasn't. I still remember my sins from the past. I still remember the evil that has been done to me. He hasn't removed it. Maybe I need to beg him more. You look around, and I think if we have a vision of Jesus that doesn't come from the Scriptures, he's a pretty disappointing guy. Is he disappointing you by failing to make you a patient mom? Is he failing to make your parents or other family members more tolerable? He literally says we shouldn't worry about money and resources. Look at how I care for the birds, he says. If, if I care for little tiny sparrows, I'm going to care for you all the more. And you say, yeah, but... He's failed to give me the money that I need to make it. It's disappointing. I'm told that he's able, more than able, to do, to make me into what he wants me to be, to do the things that concern me today. But he's not doing the things I want him to. And the world seems to be spinning, spiraling out of control all over the place. I'm disappointed by what he asks me to walk away from. I need that stuff. Somebody asked me to walk away from things I need. I'm disappointed by the fact that he isn't doing what I expected him to do. Isn't this exactly what's happening with the Pharisees and the countless men and women in these crowds? The disciples too? They hear that this is Jesus the Nazarene, the spokesperson of God, and they're stoked because if he's the spokesperson of God, who I know really, really well, then he's going to be saying the things that I would expect him to say in doing the things that I expect him to do. And this Jesus says, he says and he does what he does, and you look at it and you say, there's no way this is from God. Dude's got to be blaspheming. He has to be. And Jesus says, you think I'm blaspheming? Do you think I'm crazy? Because that's, that's because you haven't actually been reading the real word of God. You're living off of cultural impressions and popular ideas about God. Let's go to Matthew 21 with me. This even ties into kids camp a little bit. It's cool. Matthew 21. Matthew is going to recount the same s s scene we've looked at. 
He tells it a little bit differently than Mark does, so some details uh, look weird when juxtaposed. But I want to read this little portion of Matthew 21 with you, and I think it'll help us to see a certain blindness that we all share. Verse 14 is where we'll read. We'll just read a few verses here. Matthew 21, verse 14. Same scene. The blind came to him in the temple courts, and he healed them. This is Jesus. But when the chief priests and the experts in the law saw the wonderful things that he did, and they heard the children crying out in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant, and they were, they were disappointed, really mad at him. And they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? Jesus said to them, yeah, I do hear them. Have you ever read out of the mouths of children and nursing infants, we, you have prepared praise for yourself? Okay, so they're, they're mad. They're like, man, he's, 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 manip- he's brainwashing the children. The children are now screaming out to this blasphemer. This has got to stop. And Jesus comes in and he's like, yeah, of course they are. You would know this. Haven't you folks ever read your Bibles? You know, that's a phrase that's pretty common around CB culture. If you had, you wouldn't, I wouldn't look so crazy. I would make a lot more sense. Last line, and then leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he spent the night there. So interesting what's happening here. I would say this, men and women, we are living in a time in history and in the history of the church where the Holy Spirit of God, I think, is reintroducing Jesus himself as the scriptures reveal him to the church first and then to the world around us. We have to really become Jesus people. We have to really know these gospels deeply so we can know when people start to co-op Jesus for different things, we can know the difference between real Jesus and pop culture Jesus. It's interesting to see how the very things Jesus was doing, with, which is what Matthew calls wonderful, were so disappointing to the people who knew God so well. It was a wonderful disappointment. That's the picture we started to see last week, thinking about the difference between the two ways of power, the way of the dragon versus the way of the lamb. We have to get over ourselves and stop being so bummed with the reality that God is in full control of. He has showed us and told us about reality. Over and over again, I hear fear and anxiety and even bitterness toward the realities of this world. And it often sounds like we're disappointed with God and we're disappointed with his timeline and we're disappointed with his wisdom. His way seems so ineffective and so weak and yet it is truly wonderful. You see, the people, his people saw the monster and the evil always out there. So the fight is really unwinnable unless you kill them or avoid them. If it's always other people's problems, there's not much you can do. Jesus comes and says the first fight is good. The the front lines are in your own heart and soul. And I'm going to teach you how to wage that battle and I'm going to walk with you through it and we will win. You are not morally superior to anybody. But you are beloved by God. And if you live in this way, you can walk out of the bondage that you've been experiencing. Always being afraid of losing something. Always being afraid of the bad guys that might destroy something. God says through Jesus, I have created all things. I am in control. I knew where the donkey was going to be. 
and I told you exactly what to do. Be confident in me, says Jesus. Give allegiance to me, not to the disjointed states of any nation, but pledge your allegiance to Jesus. The front line in the battle against Satan and his corruption is in your own heart, and with me on your side, all things are possible. The initial disappointment we feel when we realize Jesus isn't going to magically wipe out all of our struggle like we had hoped for is, is then followed up with the wonderful news that he actually will in a way we just didn't expect. And it starts with the transformation of your own heart and soul. And he's with you and you're his beloved. And he will see you come into his full likeness so that you too can walk to a death with no fear. Jesus is the most wonderful disappointment. He disappoints us not by magically or forcefully fixing the personal and the social problems we want fixed, but he is wonderful by opening our blind eyes to the fact that the ways we try to fix those things have never worked, and they never will. The way to move toward health and well-being is the way of Christ. It's the way that blind Bartimaeus chose to follow, the way into the cross. You want to defeat your enemies? Lay down your arms and love them so much that you're willing to die for them. And trust Jesus when he says that if they do kill you, like they killed him, even though that looks like a catastrophic fail, it is but a temporary blip on the timeline of a life that never ends. You will be in my kingdom where there are no more tears forever, says Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we are sad to admit that you do disappoint us. But we are thankful for the daily chance that we have to live in allegiance to you. Help us to see through the many discussions and descriptions that seem to characterize you in strange ways. Help us to trust in your holy scriptures. Help us to absorb the four gospels into the fiber of our being so that we know your voice and follow you alone. We love you and we trust you with the lives that you gave to us and we do want to live with you. Thank you for the mercy and the grace that you show us every single day. Amen.